For Judaism today, whenever we read from the Torah as a community, we are commemorating the embrace of the very water of Jewish life, the very source of our joy, the renewal of learning and Jewish life that occurred through Ezra and Nehemiah at the water gate. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 281, At the Watergate. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of the Watergate. The word has already so seared itself into the American mindset that we have taken on the strange affectation of using the word gate as a suffix for every scandal. Today, however, we speak about an event that took place long before 1972 one involving a gate, indeed, a water gate. This event involved not scandal, but rather a moment of monumental importance to the Jewish people and our history. With Ezra overseeing the education of the Israelites and Nehemiah completing the walls of Jerusalem and safeguarding spiritual observance, the two leaders deem it time to gather the Jews in Jerusalem. We must first note the time that this occurs. Nehemiah 7, verse 73. So the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and some of the people and the Nathaniums and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. The seventh month, this becomes known as the month of Tishrei, and the first day of that month becomes known as Rosh Hashanah. How a month that is not the first month can be associated with a Jewish observance of the new year is beyond our discussion at this point. Suffice it to say that there are several new years in the Jewish calendar cycle, marking different moments of renewal. And renewal is itself what transpires at the temple in a ceremony on the first of the seventh month, on that sacred day, a ceremony overseen by Ezra and Nehemiah. Chapter 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matitiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Uriah, and Chilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Pidiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashum, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mishulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Yeshua and Bani and Sherevah, Yamin, Akuv, Shabtai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Yosavad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. What we have here is nothing less than a national education ceremony, the reading of the book of the law by which, of course, the text refers to not a modern book, but rather the scroll of the Torah. Through this event, Ezra and Nehemiah enshrine learning at the heart of Jewish existence. And the description of this Torah reading becomes the inspiration for how the ritual of Torah reading in synagogue is done in the years that follow. Note the reference to how the Levites caused the people to understand the law. As the Talmud interprets this, Ezra is instructing that whenever the scroll of the law is read in assembly, such as in a synagogue, the reading must be accompanied by interpretation, translation. 
Thus it was, for many years, that a reader from the Torah and synagogue would recite one verse and then pause, and then another person standing alongside him would render that verse into Aramaic, which was the vernacular at the time, thereby ensuring that everyone understands the reading, that what is taking place is a communal engagement of the Torah. Today, most do not perform this aspect of the reading ritual because the Aramaic, or Targum, does not necessarily enhance understanding for the standard worshiper. But the concept of communal translation and interpretation lives on in the constancy of perushim, commentaries and explanations that have become an indispensable part of the way that the Torah is studied today. The texts of Ezra and Nehemiah for the Talmud are usually described as comprising one book in the Bible, and it is they who in unison create a culture that places learning and teaching at the heart of the Jewish experience for so many Jews during the Second Temple period, and for Judaism after the destruction. Rabbi Sachs, in his preface to his Rosh Hashanah prayer book, argues that this Rosh Hashanah in Jerusalem at the Watergate marked a major moment. What he writes bears quoting, quote, It was a turning point in Jewish history, and it is not too much to say that we owe to it the survival of Jews in Judaism. What Ezra and Nehemiah had understood was that religious identity was at the heart of Jewish survival. The Israelites had undergone almost a controlled experiment into what enables a nation to endure. Following the split of the nation into two after the death of Solomon, the northern kingdom had been controlled by the Assyrians, transported, its people had, for the most part, acculturated into the general population and disappeared, to become known to history as the Ten Lost Tribes. The southern kingdom of Judah, conquered and forced into exile by the Babylonians, had sustained their identity. Inspired by people like Ezekiel, they studied Torah, they prayed. They listened to the prophets who told them that their covenant with God was still intact. They stayed Jews. Indeed, the very fact that we are today called Jews, Yehudim, i.e. members of the southern kingdom of Judah, is testimony to this phenomenon. Ezra and Nehemiah, Rabbi Sachs continues, seeing the sad state of Jewish identity among the Jews of Israel, realized that a major program of religious revival was called for, beginning with the public reading of the Torah that Rosh Hashanah, the first ever national adult education seminar. The strength of the Jewish nation, they saw more clearly than any of their contemporaries, lay not just in armies and physical defense, but in identity and spiritual defense. Ezra was a new type in history, a scribe, a teacher, as hero, end quote. It is with this in mind that we can better appreciate the location of this renewal ceremony, the Sha'ar Hamayim, the gate of water, or if you will, the water gate. It was so called because it was from this gate that one would descend to the pool of Siloam, the water source of Jerusalem and the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah are perhaps saying that the Torah itself is the source of life, the very water of the Jewish people. Interestingly, we know that according to tradition, the joyous festival of Sukkot, which also takes place in the seventh month, was marked ritually in the temple by the drawing of water from this pool, bringing it through the water gate and pouring it on the altar in the temple. This ritual, affiliated with the water gate, was, the rabbis report, the source of the most joyous celebration of the year, the festival of the water drawing on Sukkot. And while this water ritual is not discussed explicitly in the description of Ezra and Nehemiah, it is striking that what follows the Watergate renewal ceremony is a jubilant observance of Sukkot itself. Verse 14, And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mountain, fetch, olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God 
and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. Thus does a massive celebration of Sukkot take place. The Mishnaic texts, written after the Second Temple was destroyed, are filled with descriptions of the Feast of Booths as observed when the Temple stood, vividly bringing to life how the priests descending out of the water gate to draw water every morning to pour on the altar, heralded the occasion with trumpets sounding in profound joy. And we are now able to appreciate that the water gate itself, every Sukkot, brought to mind the very source of renewal for Second Temple Jewry that took place at the very beginning of that era. How then, year after year, could the assembled Israelites in Jerusalem at the water gate not rejoice? But not everyone in Jerusalem was inspired to joy at the annual ritual. For the Talmud reports that the ritual of the water drawing was not accepted by all Jews, and this led to a scandalous controversy surrounding the water ritual. Or, if you will, it led to a Watergate controversy. While the Jews that followed the rabbis embraced the water drawing, a group known as the Sadducees rejected this rabbinic tradition and argued that only wine should be poured on the altar and not water. Thus, the Mishnah tells us, once a Sadducee priest chose to pour the water on his feet instead of on the altar, and the assembled populace, loyal to the rabbinic or Pharisaic tradition, threw their citrons, the holiday fruit associated with Sukkot, at the Sadducee priest. Here we have an actual scandal memorialized in the Mishnah for all eternity, involving the Sha'ar Hamayim, a scandal involving the Watergate, or if you will, we have a Watergate gate. And this provokes us to further reflection. Why is this ritual for Jewish tradition so central to the Sukkot celebration? Why, for the sages, is it water and not only wine that embodies the very quintessence of Judaic jubilation? My grandfather, as I believe I've once mentioned, suggested that wine symbolizes the luxuries of life. Wine is essential to the fine dining experience. And wine, of course, is also embraced by Jewish law. Indeed, the very ritual of Kiddush is a way of honoring the Sabbath meal by opening it with a blessing over wine. At the same time, in our embrace of life's luxuries, we are all too likely to forget that it is the most elemental aspects of life that are most worthy of celebration. For Judaism today, whenever we read from the Torah as a community, we are commemorating the embrace of the very water of Jewish life, the very source of our joy, the renewal of learning and Jewish life that occurred through Ezra and Nehemiah at the water gate. And we are reminded thereby that at the heart of Jewish endurance is making accessible to the next generation the water of Judaism, the Torah. For us in contemporary society, the very word Watergate may be synonymous with scandal and failure. But for Judaism, the words Watergate embody something very different. It bespeaks of one of the most important entrances in Jerusalem, a door that is central to Jewish history and to our very approach to life. To not embrace the Jewish Watergate message would itself be a scandal, for in the Watergate lies the essence of our deepest joy. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.